Let me take this opportunity to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. Let's hear God's word together. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know the state of every heart in this place this morning. You know what our burdens and sorrows are, Lord. And while our challenges may be different, we know that we all need the same thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we pray that you would help us to heed the words of the Apostle Paul and remember Christ Jesus. Help us to see how the work and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ meets our need Grant us to find comfort and strength in the glorious news concerning your Son, Jesus. Comfort us, strengthen us, give us the grace that we need, Lord, to endure, to persevere in the path of obedience, which is sometimes the hard path of obedience, and grant us to endure with joy. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word and use it to accomplish your good purposes in our midst. We pray that you would draw people to yourself as Christ is proclaimed, and we pray that you would uh, renew and sanctify your people, making them more like your son, Jesus. Amen. This is the time of year where it's almost cliche to speak of uh, unrealized resolutions, or at least very nearly so. Uh, start, end of the year, plans are made. Start of the year, there is a resolve to do better. And come the end of January, those resolutions frequently fizzle out and come to naught. Uh, you know, in the afterglow of a large meal, we resolve, never again. <laughs> I'm going to eat better, I'm going to exercise, and we maintain that resolution for, uh, among the strong, a week, two weeks, and then uh, we fail. It's, almost, it's a cliche, we laugh about it, because we know that that's a nearly universal human experience, to resolve and to fade and fizzle out. And the New Testament commends to us the opposite quality. The opposite of fickleness is steadfastness, resolve, endurance. Uh, the way to glory is often difficult, and the consistent call in Scripture is that God's people would persevere and run the race with endurance. And that's what uh, is happening here in Paul's admonition to Timothy. The Apostle Paul, as we have already recognized, is about to die, and he is passing on the baton to Timothy. And he knows that if Timothy is going to be faithful to his calling to preach Christ in a world that hates Christ, Timothy is going to face 
hardships of every kind. And so he has to be strengthened to endure. Paul says to Timothy, to endure, to go the distance, to persevere, even when life is hard, you need to remember three things. Number one, you need to remember Christ. Remember Christ. Number two, remember what suffering accomplishes. Remember what suffering accomplishes. And number three, remember that the cross precedes the crown. Suffering precedes glory. Okay. And this, uh, we should note as well, verses 8 through 13, are an extension of what Paul has previously said in the first seven verses of the chapter. He has called Timothy to suffer, and he has given him reasons to suffer, to continue, and and this is a continuation of that theme. We should note that at the outset. What must Timothy remember then? Timothy must remember Jesus Christ, which is an interesting bit of instruction, especially when we consider that much of what Timothy is going to do is tell people about Jesus. That's his whole life. But he has to not only tell people about Jesus and show them the relevance of Jesus, he himself has to remember Jesus Christ and the relevance of the personal work of Christ to his situation. He is not going to make it as he labors in the trenches and faces opposition and difficulty. He is not going to go the distance if he does not look again and again to Jesus. In all of his sorrows and in all of our sorrows, we need to remember Jesus Christ. We are never seeing our circumstances correctly if we see only our circumstances. We see our circumstances correctly when we see them in the light of who Christ is. When his glory and victory shines on our situation, only then can we be said to see it clearly. And having told Timothy to remember Jesus Christ, he specifically underscores the victory of Christ. Christ is risen from the dead. Here is a reference to Jesus' resurrection. The Son of God died, but he arose triumphantly again on Easter Sunday. He is victorious. The grave could not defeat our Lord Jesus Christ. There is an iron law of human existence. We're born, we live, we die, and we stay dead. But in the resurrection, that iron law was shattered. The ancient wheel that turned from the beginning of the world suddenly ground to a halt and began to turn in the opposite direction with Jesus' resurrection. In his triumph, he left the guilt of sin and the power of death behind him in the grave. And with his resurrection, our Lord inaugurated a new and better order, a new world. After his resurrection, he is beyond, forever beyond the reach of death. And those who through faith are united to Jesus will also one day participate in that new reality, that new order. Timothy, when you face the challenges of ministry, the challenges of faithfully proclaiming Jesus in a dark world, remember the resurrection. Remember the victory of Christ over the grave and over sin and take heart. And remember not only his resurrection, but that he is the offspring of David, a way of underscoring Jesus' kingship. David, of course, was Israel's great king, and the Messiah, God's ultimate king, Jesus, is a descendant, according to his human nature, from David. On the other side of his resurrection, our Lord Jesus reigns as the supreme king over all powers and authorities. Ultimate authority belongs to him, and therefore we can be sure that it's not a question of whether 
His kingdom will come. It's simply a question of when. With the resurrection, he has won the war, and it's simply a matter of his victory being realized in every nook and cranny of the universe. He reigns supreme at the right hand of God, and his kingdom will be forever. His rule will be established on earth as it is in heaven. So Paul says to Timothy and to us, remember Jesus, remember his victory, remember his rule in the trenches of life. That's the only thing that will sustain you. And this is precisely what Satan tries to cause us not to do. If we ought to remember Jesus, then Satan tries to cause us to forget Jesus and to focus on everything that is not going as it should in our lives. Paul says, remember Jesus. Satan would have us forget Jesus and look at those things in our lives that are heartbreaking and difficult. He wants to take the magnifying glass and put it over everything that's not as it should be and throw a blanket over the lamp of truth. Look at everything that's wrong in your life. Fixate on that. Focus on that and forget about Jesus. Look at everything that's wrong in your marriage. Look at the fact that for years you've tried to work at your marriage and there seems to be so little progress and you don't feel like you, go on, you can go on. Focus on that. Forget about the limitless resources that are in the resurrected Christ to empower you to endure. Forget about the fact that he is the vine and you are the branch. And he bestows life and power to you. Forget about the fact that the risen Lord shares with you his resurrection life through the Holy Spirit. Through God the Holy Spirit, the risen Lord bestows resurrection power and life to his people that they might endure in the hardest situations and continue in the path of obedience. Forget about all that. Look how hard it is. Focus on that. And if he, if he can get us to forget Christ and focus simply on the adversity, what will happen? Discouragement, giving up. We won't endure, we won't continue. If you want to persevere, remember Jesus Christ. You're not seeing your circumstances correctly if you see only your circumstances. Lift up your circumstances, place them next to Jesus, and view them in the light of his faithfulness and power and glory. And if this isn't consoling, consider how much worse Paul's troubles are than yours. Just a cursory glance at this letter reveals that Paul had to endure all sorts of hardships. Perhaps the most painful, I don't know, but I'm speculating here. Perhaps the most difficult was the betrayal of people that he trusted. Isn't that one of the hardest things in life? People that you have come to rely on, to trust, to view as allies when they turn their back on you and betray you, how painful that is. 2 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Turn from me. 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I was left alone. People that should have been there by my side weren't there. May the Lord have mercy on them. Abandonment. Secondly, Paul dealt with false teaching and the destabilizing effects of false teaching on those he loved. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who swerved from the faith, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. This false teaching is unsettling God's people. And Paul has a pastor's heart. When he sees error leading people astray, he's not indifferent to that. 
It eats him up. Of course he's concerned about the church. He's harmed by his enemies. 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. We don't know what that harm was, but we know he was injured by opponents to the gospel. He's about to die. He's He's in prison, treated like a common criminal, bound with chains as a criminal, he writes in chapter 2, verse 9. He's not free to go where he will. He's imprisoned, and finally he is about to be executed. 2 Timothy 4, 6. The time of my departure has come. Abandoned, concerned for people who are being affected by error, imprisoned, and about to be executed. And Paul doesn't give way to self-pity and discouragement. What steals him? What gives him hope in the midst of that kind of darkness? Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the king, remember his victory, and that he is always with his people. 2 Timothy 4.17, the Lord stood by me. When others abandoned him, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. When all other helps fail, when all other people let you down, Jesus is a solid refuge who stands by his people. That's what caused the apostle Paul to endure. He remembered Jesus Christ. He remembered the resurrection and the reign of his Lord. If we want to press on, that's what we need to see again and again. We need to be reminded of Christ. We need to remember Christ. So where where do you need to remember Jesus Christ today? What areas of your life are you looking at without seeing the relevance of his victory? What are the things that weigh upon you, that break your heart, and you're fixated on those things, but you are not seeing how Christ speaks to those things? problems in your life? How does his love, his faithfulness, his limitless provision to strengthen you, how do these realities speak to the challenges that you currently face? Paul's encouragement to us, as it was to Timothy, is to remember Jesus. You want to endure, you want to run the race well and persevere to the end, remember Christ. Second, remember what suffering accomplishes. As I've said, Paul is in prison. He is chained like a criminal. But notice the contrast, verse 9. But the word of God is not bound. He's limited. He will soon die. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving message about Jesus, his death and resurrection, marches on. And it has marched on for 2,000 years after the death of the apostle Paul. And people continue to find forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to God through that message. That message, that good news can't be stopped because it is the Lord's will that it should triumph. As Martin Luther in his hymn uh, puts it, a mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. It is the Lord's good pleasure that his word should go out into the world and conquer. And that's a source of confidence for us. Colossians 1, uh, 5 and 6 say, says this, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is the word of God and therefore it is not impotent the way the word of man is. That message about Jesus is powerful. It is what God uses to bring the dead to life. And because it is powerful, we confidently share it. Our confidence finally should not be in the messenger, but in the message. 
shouldn't be in ourselves. It should be in the powerful truth that we proclaim because that's the means that God uses to draw people to himself. Charles Spurgeon, uh, most of you will know, is a great uh, Baptist preacher from the 19th century, one of the greatest preachers of all time, very gifted, very eloquent. The Lord used him mightily to draw many people to himself. But in one of the ironies of history, the preacher whom God used to convert the greatest preacher was a terrible preacher. Uh, Spurgeon, in his autobiography, tells the story, one Sunday morning he is headed to a church uh, to hear the message, but there's a snowstorm that prevents him from arriving at the church he originally attended, intended to attend, and he takes a side street and ends up in a little Methodist chapel, 12 to 15 people. Not even the pastor shows up, presumably because of the snowstorm. Uh, an individual stands up, not gifted, not learned, and begins to expound Isaiah. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon notes that the man had to stay close to the text because he had little else to say, he had little else, little else to offer. He notes that he did not even pronounce the words rightly. This is the man that God used to draw Charles Spurgeon to himself. Prince of preachers. What do we learn from that irony? We learn the power is in the message, not the messenger. God uses the weak things of the world, us, to shame the wise, and cause the truth to advance. So one of the things that should embolden us when it comes to sharing Jesus with other people is the recognition that this message is glorious and it has the power of God behind it. And it is what converts, not our eloquence and learning. Put your confidence not in yourself, but in that message. That's what sustained Paul. The word is not bound. And notice, as a result of that reality, because it is God's instrument for the conversion of the lost, as a result of that, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. What is implied in verse 10 is that if Timothy, if Paul is to speak the truth about Jesus in a world that hates God, there will be suffering. That's unavoidable. If you want to make Jesus known and live in obedience to him in this fallen world, you will suffer, you will face opposition. But Paul says, I'm willing to endure anything and everything so that the gospel might go out and God's people might be converted. Uh, the reference here to elect is a reference to God's people. It underscores the truth that God, before the foundation of the world, in grace chose a people to redeem. But notice, he, he's not saying that because of that, we don't need to preach the gospel. He's saying because of that, we need to preach the gospel. God not only in grace chose a people for himself, but what is the divinely appointed means for drawing these people to himself? Preaching, right? God chose a people in grace, but he also chose that they would be saved through the proclamation of the gospel. These truths, in Paul's mind at least, don't conflict. He is to proclaim the word that God's people might be drawn to himself. But don't miss the larger point here. Paul is saying, I'm willing to suffer again, and again, so that the good news about Jesus would go out into the world and people would be converted. That's why, Timothy, you should be willing to do the work of an evangelist. That's why you should be willing to suffer and face opposition and persecution. It is through suffering and persecution and opposition that Jesus is made known and God's people are drawn in. 
What does John 3.16 say? That Jesus loved the world and gave himself for the world. He loved the world and he suffered. And in the same way, when we love the lost, we are willing to even suffer that they might know Jesus Christ. Now, we don't suffer in the same way Jesus suffered. His suffering was redemptive. His suffering took away our sin. We don't suffer in that sense. But if this good news is to go out to the ends of the earth, it will require pain, a willingness to pay the price on the part of the church. And Paul is saying to us, we need to be willing to pay that price, even to the point of suffering persecution and death. That's the way the gospel advances, through the church's faithful witness, which means saying yes to suffering. Now, there are different forms that this suffering takes. Obviously, martyrdom, the loss of life, is the most acute form of this suffering. But this suffering can also include and does include the loss of respect and prestige, for instance, in society. What is it that makes us reluctant evangelists? What is it that causes us to be hesitant to share Jesus with other people? It's the fear of embarrassment. We don't want other people to lose respect for us. We don't want to be marginalized, right? There's a fear that if I open my mouth and talk about Jesus, I will suffer this. Paul is saying, yeah, you might. So what? So what? Do you care more about your ease and comfort than the state of the, of the soul of the person in front of you? It is through a, a willingness to endure lack of respect, marginalization, what have you, that the gospel advances. So yes, there might be consequences that are painful to you as a result of communicating Christ to others, but Paul's message to us is that we would be willing to pay that price. The gospel advances as we say yes to the suffering that comes from proclaiming Christ. Timothy, continue on in the work, accept the hardships, because it is through these hardships and the faithful proclamation of the word that God will draw his people to himself. Third, remember that the cross comes before the crown. Here, the Apostle Paul quotes a trustworthy saying. You can bank on it. You can build your life on it. He may have written this, or he might be quoting, perhaps an early Christian hymn. Paul writes, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. The reference to death here is not a reference in the first instance to physical death. It is a reference to the suffering that God's people endure as they walk in obedience to Jesus. Uh, That obedience can culminate even in death, but it's the kind of death to self and self-interest that is especially in view. John Stott captures it well in his commentary. The death with Christ, which is here mentioned, must refer to our death to self and safety as we take up the cross and follow Christ. The Christian life is pictured as a life of dying, a life of enduring. Only if we share his sufferings and endure shall we share his reign in the world to come. And there might be a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 9 through 10. It's not exactly parallel, but close enough. Persecuted, Paul says, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And as you see there, the connection between the death of Jesus and his sufferings. So that's what's in view. As we walk with Jesus, we face opposition, and we are prepared to endure in the face of that opposition. And on the other side of that suffering, we will also live with him. This looks back to what Paul has already said about the resurrection. 
Jesus passed through death, triumphed, and passed into life. Life as it meant to, was meant to be lived. And we who endure, walk in the hard path of obedience, will pass through suffering to the other side, and we will experience resurrection life with Jesus Christ. On the, on the other side of the suffering and the, and the pain, there is victory for us as well. There is no other path to glory and resurrection than this one. It's the path of suffering and opposition that ultimately leads to that ultimate triumph. Uh, if the road becomes suddenly smooth, you can be sure that you've taken a wrong turn. The road that leads to heaven is the road that also leads through the cross that leads through suffering. There are many potholes along the way that shake us, that rattle us. But in some ways, we know we're on the right road precisely because there are potholes along the way. This is the path that takes us home. And one of Satan's schemes is to say to us, perhaps there's an easier way. Perhaps you don't have to go this way, the way of the cross. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's an easier path for you. Isn't that what uh, happened when Peter came to Jesus? After Jesus declared that he has to suffer and die, what did Peter say to him? Took him aside, he rebuked him and said, hey, I think there's an easier path. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. There is no lighter load. There is no easier path. This is the only path that there is, and it leads to glory. And it's the path of suffering. A similar idea is then expressed in verse 12. If we endure... That is, if we steadfastly persist in the face of opposition, we will also reign with him. And this adds something that isn't affirmed in verse 11. We will live with him, we will be glorified, but here we will reign with Christ, suggesting that we will share in his honor and his authority. There is glory on the other side of the suffering is the point. Verse 12 further unpacks what he says in verse 10 when he refers to eternal glory. What are we headed toward? On the other side of the difficulties and troubles of life, what will we experience? Eternal glory. Isn't that a beautiful way of summing up the Christian hope? Glory in Scripture is generally ascribed to God. He is glorious. He is majestic. And that intrinsic glory is expressed outwardly through His radiance. But what Paul is suggesting is that in some sense we will share in that glory. We will reflect his greatness and strength and wisdom and beauty and purity back to him and others. The end point of our salvation is glorification. To be like he is completely. To reflect on a creaturely level the majesty of God. In this life we experience weaknesses of various kinds. Our bodies are weak, they decay, they die. No sooner do you reach mature manhood, the prime of life, than the slow descent begins. The, the limbs stiffen, the mind isn't as nimble, as quick as it used to be. Uh, we lose our strength, our vitality, just getting up becomes a chore. We decay, we wither, and we die because we have sinned. Life in the in the present, in this fallen world, and in this body, is characterized by weakness, by decay. And finally, they place our bodies in the grave. But the day is coming when our Lord Jesus Christ will summon us back from the grave, when the spirit and body will be reunited, 
and we will have the same glorified body that Jesus Christ currently has. A life beyond the reach of death and illness and decay, a, a, a body brimming with vigor and strength, just like the body of our Lord Jesus. In this life, we say many things that give us occasion to regret what we've said. How many times have you said to yourself, I wish I had said that? How many times do we say things that are silly, foolish, and even cruel, and we regret saying them? Of course, that folly comes from a foolish heart, but one day, everything that we say will perfectly reflect the wisdom of God because there will be no sin left in us. We will be totally and completely pure. There will be no sin left. We will reflect God's utter moral purity. Pride and lust and cowardice will have no more place in our hearts. We will be as God is. In this life, we have sighing and sorrows and heartaches, trials, troubles, as Paul has been saying to Timothy. But we recognize that the sighing and the tears and the heartaches of this life will give way to everlasting joy. Weeping will give way to singing. Song of Solomon 2, verses 11 through 12 uh, say, Behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. In the light of eternity, all of the sorrows of this present life will be wiped away and washed away. It's like that uh, mother who is in pain and anguish during childbirth, but then when she holds that little baby girl, looks at her smile, all of the pain is forgotten because of the joy that is experienced. Uh, in the same way, a joy that we can't conceive now will swallow up the troubles of this life. And finally, in this life, we see our Lord Jesus through a glass dimly. We see him by faith. We see him imperfectly. But one day, we will see the one that we love face to face. Not by faith, but by sight. And when we look on the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we will know what it means to be truly alive. Spurgeon writes, to come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. That's the eternal glory that awaits us. And it's only by remembering that and living in the glow of that future world that we will be able to endure. Timothy will be able to persevere in ministry as he contemplates that eternal glory and you will be able to press on in faithfulness and fidelity to Jesus as you contemplate that eternal glory. But there is another side to the coin. We have focused on the honey, on the sweet side of the truth. Uh, all truth is sweet, but perhaps in different ways. Here, there is a, a stern warning at the end of verse 12. So on the one hand, if we persevere, there's everlasting glory. But on the other hand, if we deny him, he will also deny us. And here, Paul reflects the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. To deny Jesus means that you walk away from the faith. You reject him. 
Though at one point you professed faith in Jesus, you submitted to him, you have turned away and walked away, and those who deny Jesus will be denied on that last day. What we see is that saving faith is also persevering faith. The faith that saves is also a faith that continues on in the face of hardship to the end. Those who reject Jesus, who deny him, uh, distance themselves from him, will be finally rejected by Jesus himself. And we should note also, it's possible to deny Jesus not simply through our words, but also through our lifestyle. It's possible to say, yeah, I love Jesus and I trust in him, and not care about obeying his commands. If that's you, you are denying Jesus not through what you say, but through the way that you live. Now, I, I would qualify that by pointing out that God's people won't be perfected until we go to be with the Lord. We will sin, we will struggle. But if you're a believer, that will grieve you. You'll want to repent. You'll want to grow. You, you will want to turn towards Jesus in greater obedience. What I'm talking about is the sort of person who knows the will of Jesus Christ doesn't care. I'm going to do it anyway. There's grace. I'll be forgiven. To live that way is to deny Jesus in practice and to be finally rejected. This is the other side of the coin. There's only one path that leads to life, and it's the path of endurance in the face of hardships. To walk away from that path is ultimately to be lost. The path might be, the alternative path might be smooth for the moment, but it leads to everlasting destruction and ruin. I think we need to reflect on this more, perhaps, than we do, especially as antagonism to Christianity intensifies in the culture. As the cost for following Jesus increasing, uh, increasingly intensifies in a world that hates Jesus, we need to remember this. To walk away from Jesus is finally to walk toward destruction. And this is also meant to encourage us in our endurance. Where else will we go? Yes, the path is hard, but it's the only one. What other path can we turn to? And then Paul ends with a balancing statement. To reject Jesus is to be finally rejected. However, there, there's a recognition that we stumble and fall in many ways. And Paul concludes with a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness to his people. Yes, we sin. Yes, there are moments where we are cowardly when we should be strong. But even in those faithless moments, we remember that he is faithful to us. His faithfulness is unwavering. It will be there again and again and again. Remember Peter? Peter denied Jesus. And yet for Peter, there was forgiveness and there was restoration. And so also there is forgiveness and restoration for, for all those who recognize their sin, confess it, seek forgiveness. The, the implication is that we are pardoned, restored, and enabled to continue again and again. So we, we stumble, we seek forgiveness, we run, we stumble, we get back up again, and we do it again and again until we get to glory. Uh, my old pastor used, had a really striking phrase. He would say, uh, we go from disaster to disaster onto glory, onto victory. Uh, this captures, I think, the truth very well. We, we, we go, we fall, we get up. We go, we fall, we get up. And on the other side of that is glory. And we are enabled to persist because of the Lord's faithfulness to us. He can't, we might say reverently, he can't help himself but be faithful. Look at verse 13. He cannot deny himself. Is there anything God can't do? Careful. 
Is there, is there anything God can't do? Well, he cannot act in a way that's inconsistent with his own nature and character. God will always act in a way that is consistent with his goodness and wisdom and purity. And it is his nature and his character to be faithful to his people. And knowing that, we press on. So Timothy is told that he will be able to endure the challenges, the opposition, by remembering Christ, by remembering that eternal glory that's in front of him, and by remembering God's faithfulness to his people along the way. And we also, in the face of challenges and difficulties, need to remember the same thing. There is before us eternal glory, and God is strengthening us along the way. He who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to despair of ourselves, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own resources, and depend entirely upon you and the power that you provide. Lord, use your word this morning to strengthen us in our walk with you, to help us see our situation in light of who your son is and what he has done, and find strength in him. Amen.